This opus of Triloquy is supported by the Lewis Prize for Music, announcing their second annual Accelerator Awards. Applications are open until Friday, August 21st, with winning applicants receiving a multi-year prize of $500,000 beginning in January of 2021. Are you involved with a creative youth development music organization? Do you seek to influence youth-serving systems so all young people have access to learning, creating, and performing experiences that reflect their culture and identity? If so, you should definitely apply. Find more information about the Accelerator Awards and the Lewis Prize for Music on the front page of the Triloquy website or at thelewisprize.org. Thanks for that, Scott. Ready to get the episode started? Let's do it. I'm Garrett McQueen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, one of the most genre-intersectional podcasts. There's nothing like it out here. Shout out to Ryan Leonard. Thank you for that nice shout out on Twitter. And he's got a great screen name, too. What's his screen name? Postponed Butter Cow Judge. It is postponed, isn't it? What would you think it'd be like to be a Butter Cow Judge? Do you taste all of the butter, do you think? (laughs) (laughs) I have no idea. I do. Well, well, he's the butter cow, so you're judging the cows. Huh. That's a whole different angle. Yeah. A whole different skill set. I don't know, but yeah, but <laughs> but shout out to Ryan Leonard, um, uh, clarinetist out of Pittsburgh. So if you need somebody to Great play town. clarinet and you're over in Pittsburgh, yeah, um, reach out to uh, Ryan Leonard. Uh, also want to um, shout out and uh, thank the Lewis Prize for Music. We'll uh, uh, talk a, a little bit more about that um, on this opus of Triloquy. Um, you know, shout out to the new listeners as always. Shout out to the returning listeners. Thank you for um, your support. Um, and then, uh, of course, you know, thank you once again to all of you uh, who are donating. You know, it, it really means a lot. And as Triloquy begins to go, you know, we're getting our um, LLC status uh, yeah, worked on nice. here and, and other things. So some some big things. Thank you for all your of your support. Uh, some of the things coming up on this uh, 62nd opus of uh, the Triloquy podcast. Uh, Scott and I are going to go into um, a little conversation concerning Bobby Schmurda and a video that uh, hit the Internet. Also, an Instagram account that is... Um, is is pretty hot as well. We'll get into that <laughs> in uh, in the second movement when we uh, strike a chord. Um, I'm gonna take us to Eastern Europe, Scott. Last week it was Black as King, mm-hmm. and I'm gonna take you to Caucasian sketches. So, oh, we're gonna do some hiking. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, and I'm and I'm I'm also gonna teach you what uh, junk canoe is. And you had uh, some interesting music to bring up in the second movement today. Yeah, one from Judd Greenstein and one from Sufjan Stevens, and I think it's Oso O S S O. Okay. Um, and. It is, both of them are pieces of music that I think speaks to a mood that you and I have been fighting through recently. Yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Um, uh, Taking a stand this week in the third movement is Christine Gangelhoff. She uh, has some really great things to say and some really great music uh, that she's recorded um, on the subject of so-called classical music as it applies to uh, the Bahamas and other Caribbean nations. So, uh Really great to talk with her. And then in the Triloquy, um, I guess we're going back to Washington. So I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there it for now. It was unavoidable. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's check our accidentals here. Okay. So first and foremost, I think I would like to 
talk about the Instagram account that we're here to talk about and go ahead and, and get that out of the way. So on Instagram right now, there is an account called Orchestra is Racist. Have you uh, have you visit t- paid them a visit, Scott? I've read half a dozen. So uh, for folks who don't know, um, it's a it's an account where uh, folks get to um, anonymously share some of their horror stories through music school or orchestra rehearsals. And and there's some interesting things here. I mean, has anything um, stuck out to you or or kind of shocked you or stopped you in your tracks as you're just trying to kind of reading a couple of things off of this page? No, because we're on Opus 62. (laughs) Yeah, I've been hearing this for the last year and a half. Yeah, Yeah. So. Uh, it's more affirmation is what it is. Right, right. And I think it's important for, you know, folks to, you know, have a platform in which they can spread awareness and, and talk about some of their experiences, but, you know, not feeling like they're going to, you know, okay. it's going to cost them anything. My my question is, uh, I did see there was one of the universities where, um, you know, there was um, some slang being used to uh, talk about a way they would play something. And okay. one of the, one of the one of the kids said, "Yeah, where I come from, we call it something with the N word in it." Mm. And the university then got involved, and then they're making a statement on Instagram about you know how they stand against all this sort of thing. Right? Is this really the right forum? Well, first of well, as, as far as the right forum, are you saying? Um, social media versus something else, or are you saying internet in general versus something else? Or well, people are being named. Yeah. So um, I, I'm I'm just wondering is there or is it vetted before it's posted? Do you know? Well, I mean, who knows who? And and I, you know, I, I I'm I'm in on a lot of things, but um, I I don't know who who runs this account. It, I, I'm sure I'd know the person, you know. Sure. Um, but I, I don't know who runs the account. I'll, I'll just I do I, not. I don't argue with somebody having that vehicle to yeah. vent that, and it probably should be out there. But there's a lot of anonymity, and people could get slandered. And I'm just saying it could. I'm not. Right. Right. I mean, I'm well, well, I'll, I'll let's do this. I'll, I'll read a couple here and um, we'll we'll, uh, we'll 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 kind of go through it. So this one says, while working on excerpts from Dvorak nine, which is, of course, inspired by many African-American slave spirituals in a lesson, my teacher told me I needed to imagine myself as a big black slave mama and made mocking impressions of his idea of this character. This same teacher told me that orchestras, which prioritize hiring POC for gigs, are, quote, racist against white people. So this one does not name anyone mm. but if it did mm-hmm. that it, it wouldn't be a good uh, a good day for, for would, that teacher it would not be a good look would it now um I, of course i can't ask you to you know imagine yourself as this person but i mean let's just say that you know uh, a, a teacher or a, or a manager or someone you know was saying you know things this you know ridiculous to you um, would you not feel like a load has gotten off if you had a way to express these feelings without, you know, 
causing problems for yourself because, you know, naming these people, let's face it, is going to cause a problem for yourself, especially, you know, when we're talking about black folks and classical music mm-hmm. and power structures. So, yeah. you know, so I, I guess I'm where we're going back to the conversation of is this the right way? But, you know, what what is the right way? How, how else can a person? Well, the you know, if this gets as much traction as you say, and like one of the universities that was named and one of the ones that I read, they're getting involved. How do you keep up with all those comments? And and would you get the wrong idea if the one from the school got buried? And then you comment something like, well, and, you know, in the university of such and such is silent as usual. You know, I, I'm just curious if if it's if Instagram is the right vehicle. I think a part of the conversation is that I'm sure that all of these institutions have gotten letters or emails or, you know, someone has talked to an advisor about these things Mm. and it just kind of gets brushed to the side. But it being on this platform that they cannot police where they are an equal voice in, in, in the discourse, I think it, you know, it, it lets us see what it, what it really looks like and what, you know, changing these structures, what the changing these power structures requires from these institutions. And it's them, you know, not having the, the magical, you know, uh, uh, yeah. ha- uh, what do you call the hammer that the judge has? The gavel. The gavel. You know, yeah. they, they don't get the final word. Let me, let me, I'll read one more before we move on. And this one actually does name an institution. It says, uh, during orchestra rehearsal at the Royal Academy of Music, the head of strings said, quote, the orchestra should play like slaves of a ship, all rowing at the same time, not the chicken wing eating slaves, the others, end quote. To my knowledge, this person still works at the Royal Academy of Music and has not apologized or taken ownership of the situation. The Royal Academy of Music had the audacity to post a black square a couple weeks ago. So, of course, you know, those black squares right. are supposed to be the you know, solidarity of, you know, black lives yeah. and black lives matter. The bare minimum. Um, now, so here, here we have an institution name, still not a, a person. Um, does this not, Scott, um, put a fire under that organization and, and it forces them to fix this quicker than they would have to fix it. If this were something in the, in the suggestion box, I wonder which one is, is quicker if they were to name the individual person or if they just name the organization, Yeah, because people that know that organization can figure out who they're talking about in pretty short order. Sure. Right. But you know, the, the unfortunate thing is that, you know, naming a person, especially these days is also naming that person's significant other, that person's children sometimes. And, you know, I think there is a little bit of responsibility there, but it's a, it's a sticky wicket. Yeah. There's no easy way to do it, but you know, we wouldn't even have to traverse any of this. If folks wouldn't be fucking racist, would we, excuse me, I'm already cussing, but anyway, so yeah, it's early yet. Um, I'll 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 let y'all listening decide uh, what you think about you know um, you know this as a form of getting information out here. I mean, I'm looking at the page, Scott. It has almost twelve thousand followers on Instagram. That's that's something. Yeah. You know, I don't have twelve thousand followers. I don't think um, American public. I don't think American public media has twelve thousand followers on Instagram. If no. if we're gonna keep it funky, so but. Um, Just to say how large of a thing, you know, this has this has managed to be this independent person's way of creating a platform for folks. Wouldn't Twitter be better for this? Well, I think stuff is more easily 
sort of lost in the mix on Twitter while with an Instagram page, you can go to it and just kind of go through and, and look at the whole thing. I, I, okay. I think, okay. I, I think, you know, it makes it convenient. So yeah, go, go take a look at it. Orchestra is racist. One word on Instagram. Um, and yeah, that's that. So, um, <laughs> how about we uh how, how about we get into one of uh oh i forgot what uh, that we're supposed to put an accidental next to that i think <laughs> i will put a natural next to it because it's only um, natural it, it's well it's 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 a is a way for folks to not code switch and to tell their natural their real story so yeah orchestra is racist gets a natural okay Mine's easy. Uh, a story came out earlier today that a federal grand jury has indicted two men in the long unsolved murder of Jam Master J, the pioneering DJ of Run DMC. He was killed in 2002. Uh, he was, uh, I believe he was in a studio, but it was down in Jamaica. And uh, evidently he had a side business. <laughs> he okay. was, uh, okay. yeah, he was uh, running kilos and kilos and kilos of certain products and uh there was a dispute evidently as these things often happen that way evidently and he was shot but they have two people in custody uh he was 37 years old when he was killed so some justice there now after they solve this one go ahead and send all these people over to the southern district of new york and have them get to work over there and have them and send them down to kentucky as well to get to work over there you know, tell me about Kentucky. with with, Bri- with Brianna Taylor. Oh, please, got to say her name as as often as possible. Um, you know, w- with w- with this, you know, Jam Master J. Um, Scott, I'm gonna be honest with you. This was, you know, his uh, his heyday was just before my time of really, you know, digging into hip hop and, and paying and, attention and that to what was and, coming out yeah. and, and paying attention. I mean, do you think uh, this? changes the narrative on his legacy um as a musician or i mean does this impact any of that or is this just about you know uh justice finally you know getting the truth out there from from you you know because you know obviously you have a a more a a more grown-up relationship Mm -hmm. you know with you know his music as it was you know when it was coming out as a new thing you know uh, as so many of those artists uh, of of that era they were living what they were rapping you know and much like the the ones of today do as well as i understand that that's part of uh, when we were talking on the speaker geekers podcast about how the man on the streets report is part of hip-hop and rap now and you know they were they were walking what they talked so what if they had if they were selling drugs on the side they were getting their money and and it was in the music and the uh, i think that it was authentic that way yeah um and it's part of the fabric now right you know when show show me a a hip-hop or a rap video that doesn't have you know uh, making it rain and and big cigars and champagne bottles and cars and all that because right? hip-hop is a celebration yeah i mean when if i'm ever in a rap video i'm gonna make it rain too <laughs> right. and there are some obviously you know i'm we're not we're not sitting here saying that but yeah i mean i i think when we're talking about really affirming you know um you know the legacy of, of folks like jam master j and you know respecting hip-hop as a genre which last week uh, i mentioned you know turned 47 years old you know yep um you know, if, if we're really affirming this and the culture that surrounds it, you know, I think we need to normalize that. There is nothing wrong with um, no, making it rain and and yeah. and big booty, 
you know, big booty. Mm's. <laughs> um, that's one of my favorites. No, um, I, I think that it's just accepted. It, it's known. Uh, I don't think it tarnishes his reputation at all. Yeah, yeah. And I think that most people, probably especially the family, are just going to get some relief in knowing. Yeah. And and because at the end of the day, that's is still a family member for them. Sure. You know, sure. and you know that that you know so, you know, condolences to them, and you know, rest in peace and rest in power to Jam Master Jay. Is there a is there a song or is there a sound that instantly comes to mind for you when you? Oh, how how you can't say Run DMC without saying it's tricky. Of course. This speech is my recital. I think it's very vital to rock around. That's right. On top. It's tricky. Here we go. All right, now speaking of things being tricky, <laughs> here we go. Um, so uh, a few weeks, and and we've we've been wanting to talk about this for a while, but you know things things happen here on Truly But a few weeks ago, um, a video came out of um, a rapper. His name is Bobby Schmurda. His um, audition at Epic Records that you know got him his deal and you know put him on the map and you know really propelled him in, into the hip hop limelight. Um, went to jail. He's supposed to be uh, getting out soon. But, you know, a lot of the reaction has been this room full of these um, white executives. And I'll, I'll uh, link this and you'll you can find it at Triloquy.org as well. It'll be linked there. But this room full of these, you know, white executives who obviously aren't plugged into, you know, this style of music, certainly not this uh, style of hip hop. And Bobby Schmurter just, you know, going all in in front of them because this is what has to be done, you know, for a person to you know, make it or, or, or get propelled. So, you know, there are a lot of things I think we can unpack here. What I thought of instantly when looking at this video um, was the notion of taking down the orchestra audition screen, which we, which we have been talking about. Nope. Is it just going to turn into, you know, this situation where we take down the audition screen and we're focus on, focusing on hiring uh, folks of color, hiring uh, black folks, you know, we're, is, is, you know, playing your excerpts, you know, not a version of, you know, I guess, you know, the folks on an audition panel are in tune with classical music, what you're doing. But I don't know, there will always be something weird to me about a black person, you know, sitting in front of a panel of white people performing for them, um, seeking their approval. I don't know, the, the, the philosophical things are weird. The music industry-ness of it is weird. I, I don't know. What, what, what are, what, what, when you watched that video, did anything strike a chord? Or yeah, come to, first yeah. off, was this was in 2014. Why, is the, why are we looking at it now? I mean, I, I guess, you know. Is it just another example of something that has bubbled up and, and now we're looking at it? Or, or I mean, I, I would imagine that they or like to Or is it because he's getting this, out? Well, well, mainly because he's getting out and, you know, obviously there's going to be new music coming up. But I think there's also a, a, a sense of, you know, these boardrooms keeping some of these things under locks as much as they oh, can. And now okay. maybe this person felt brave enough to put it out. Well, when I went to look at the video, it was attached to a story that had a headline that was almost exactly the same thing that I said in my head, which was, it looks like singing for your supper. But the mm -hmm. headline said... He was shucking and jiving. Right, right, which, you know, has its own historical implications. And right. But isn't that what and, and how are the people that were sitting in that room, what 
ent- what entitled them, other than the position, to determine whether or not this was going to be a hit or they should give him a, a deal? Well, the thing is... The folks in that room, and and this was noted on, um, you know, shout out to Rory from the uh, Joe Button podcast, you know, the people in that room know that this will sell, know that this is hot, you know, know that, you know, this is what the kids are, are into. I think the problem is these are also the people in charge of marketing this thing, you know. So how can, you know a group of people that aren't really in tune with a community from which this, you know, um, music comes from, how, how can they know how to engage, you know, folks and, and market to the, it's, 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 it's really nuts out here, but at the end of the day, you know, who gets most of this money? There are some of these recording uh, contracts where artists get 15, sometimes 10% of, of, of the revenue, you know, right. But they, but they tell you, you know, we're, we're, you're just going to blow up and that 10% is going to be larger than anything you've seen. And sometimes it is. And, and let's say it is, let's say 10% is, you know, some artists making a hundred million dollars or just killing it out here, sure. you know, but who are these, you know, executives and these other folks who are not the musicians, you know, have no connection to the creation or the history or the heritage culture of this music, you know, but are benefiting from it because they are in certain positions. That was my question is um, how if they know that the kids, quote unquote, are going to love whatever it is that he's doing, how? How do they know that? How do they know that? I mean, they have the Internet. And and they have the world, you know, it coming up. In There's the, no person of color in the building that they could promote to come in and help with this. I mean, and if you look at this video, I think I see one black man here. Maybe uh, maybe there's a black woman there, but you know, again, if you're, asking, just, if you're saying that with a question mark, right? It's just it's too <laughs> tough to find. Well, I mean, and it's a shame that we have to talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging when it comes to uh, record labels and black music, for goodness sake. Um, but that's just that's just what it is. I, I, I think it's a I don't know. I, I think just watching the video is a great way to just see what things are looking like and, you know, to think about what it means. You know? I would have been embarrassed to have been in that room in that situation. I'd have been embarrassed. Yeah. And to, to be one of the folks on the other side of the table. Yeah. But, you know, it, you know, and, and I, I can't really say it worked out for, you know, oh, he, he's got his, people lined up a, to work with him now that he's getting out. Right. Right. And and, and who knows what's going to come from that. And that's going to be we'll, we'll be back to talk about that, I'm sure, you know, right. as as a continuation of this. But take go go take a look at that. Um, Go, go 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 take a look at that video uh, if you find it. It's on the uh, Triloquy website. Yeah, free Shmurda, you know, welcome home, all that. Um, I hope he gets out and 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 does some great stuff. You know, uh, one thing I, I did want to mention, um, but before we got out of that, you know, um, you know, we we started this with a shout out to the Lewis Prize for Music. Mm-hmm. You know, and this Accelerator Awards uh, that they're doing. You know, one of the things. Uh, that I really like, you know, I'm, I'm sensitive about my platform, so I don't talk about a lot of folks' stuff on here, but, mm-hmm. you know, I, I really do appreciate what the Lewis Prize for Music is doing, um, because not only are they looking for 
um, diverse applicants. Um, they're making sure that um, the, the panels are diverse. So, you know, um, I, I, I know firsthand, you know, that uh, the, the folks in charge have made sure that, you know, lots of different cultures and backgrounds are um, represented so that, you know, this music-based initiative can be more um, inclusive in that way. You know, this isn't just a, a so-called classical music thing. This is open to all genres. You know, anyone who has any uh, music um, initiative organization that is community embedded and focused on, you know, giving these kids from from these communities a music education that matches that community. And then for there to be half a million dollars involved, I was going you know, to say, I was going to of, ask about that's a that. Lot of cheese. Uh, how many organizations out there in their second year can put up that kind of cabbage? Right, right. And and to have this opportunity here and, you know, so so shout out to the Lewis Prize for Music. You know, all that information is on uh, the front page of Triloquy.org uh, if you just want an easy way to find that. Uh, tell folks you know. Um, that's a lot of money. And, uh, and, and not a, there's not a lot of money just floating around in this COVID era like mm. that, you know. Mm. Um, so yeah, do a shout out to the, uh, Lewis prize for music. Um, as we get into, uh, the second movement here, we're, uh, going to talk a little bit, uh, later on about some, uh, music from the, uh, Caribbean. And, uh, we were, uh, we were, we were talking about, you know, um, how classical music in certain, um, areas have, uh, a different connotation. And, and my, my guest, Christine, uh, talks about in, in Jamaica, you know, when you say classical music, a lot of people are just talking about reggae. They're talking about um, Bob Marley. So I, I wonder, you know, I already put you on the spot for the Jam Master J. I wonder if there's a, you know, a Bob Marley that is just classic, the most classic in your experience to that sound. Movement two, the music that uh, struck a chord with us this week. Um, I guess first and foremost, we need to um, honor the now late Julian Bream, uh, a world-renowned guitarist. Scott, uh, you know, as a guitarist, I'm sure he was someone whose work you were quite familiar with. Yeah, he started out as a pianist, but um, he was more intrigued with the possibilities, he said, of the guitar. Um, and he had an amazing right hand. You, you know, he was uh, very precise. I, th- I thought. And the day that he died, I, I put on the Aranjuez Concerto, and um, and and it was just there was there were subtleties on top of the flash that he had that I just really appreciated. And um, I, I remember hearing. I don't think that this is true, but my guitar player told me a joke about tuning that um, somebody said to him, uh, yeah, you know, Julian Bream could co- tune a guitar in 10 seconds. And he said, mm-hmm. yeah, some people don't give a damn. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, no, he was, he was, a, he was a real um, uh, tight player. What, um, what I've read about him and that I was trying to bring in, you know, into what I was saying about him on the radio over the weekend um, was that, you know, he really um, made a point of showing that um, there's a lot more to uh, classical, so-called classical guitar music than Spain, you know. And while he was really good at, at that music, you know, um, mm-hmm. 
uh, he he also you know played music from other parts of the world, and I found a recording of him featured um, in a performance of the uh, Via Lobos, the Eitor uh, Via Lobos uh, guitar uh, concerto. Mm-hmm. Um, so much energy, so much uh, pizzazz. You know, I know we make fun of that word sometimes, but you know, just taking this instrument, just taking this wood and these strings, and and creating such colorful you know, sounds. And I'm sorry to say that Julian Bream is one of those many um, musicians whose work I wasn't so familiar with uh, before he passed away. But, Mm -hmm. you know, now that, you know, his is a name that is, you know, more in my mind now, um, I'm I'm definitely going to go back and and check out more of his stuff. I I would really uh, suggest everyone go and check out his performance of the uh, Via Lobos. Um, uh, Yeah, rest in peace um, to uh, the late Julian Bream. So um, while we're here, Scott, you know, talking about the um, the more traditional uh, classics, you know, uh, classical music. Um, so uh, as I mentioned uh, last week, I, uh, we were talking about Black is King. And mm-hmm. uh, when I got back into uh, work at the radio station, um, one of the first pieces, you know, that I had to present was this work called Caucasian Sketches. And it never fails. Every time I talk about Caucasian Sketches over the radio, some smart ass is like, oh, I never thought I'd hear you talking about Caucasian music. <laughs> but, <laughs> but Very it's, good. But it's, but it's, of course, talking about, you know, music from the Caucasus Mountains. This is, you know, Eastern Europe, Southeastern Europe, yeah. with, with a really specific sound. Um, I talk about um, the last movement, Procession of the Sardar, a lot. It starts out with this uh, bassoon and piccolo duet. One of the first um, sort of did, ditties, you know, melodies I learned to play on the bassoon, you know, back in the Napster days, you just search bassoon and see what comes up. And the last movement of this uh, suite called Caucasian Sketches came up. The composer is named um, Mikhail Mikhailovich Ipolitov Ivanov. Um, you know, all, uh, as usual, all the stuff in the um, description of this. But actually, um, so uh, when it came up on my playlist um, uh, uh, last weekend, um, instead of, you know, focusing, you know, my little preview of it at the beginning of the hour on that last movement that I talk about all the time, sure. I went in one of the inner movements and one of the inner movements is called in a mosque. Mm. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's interesting to talk about, um, you know, what the implications back in this was in the late 19th century. This piece of music was written, I believe, um, you know, the culture of going into a mosque and how back in those days it was so cultural. But these days it's so political. Sure. Um, but how we can still, you know, affirm different cultures and affirm, you know, folks uh, from Islamic traditions, you know, when it comes to our jobs as uh, classical radio hosts. Um, so I, I, I decided to go into that conversation conversation a little bit more the previous movement uh, from in a mosque is called in a village so it's supposed to be more of the music of the people the so folks I, yeah so i actually chose that music um as the backdrop but uh talked about uh you know just going into a mosque and, and really you know how this uh this russian composer you know uh went into a different part of the world you know up into the caucasus mountains and and learned about different people and you know just one of the many different um 
excuse me, examples, you know, how, you know, this, this orchestral music can be used to, you know, just inspire very basic truths about, you know, exposing yourself to new things and, and, uh, and, and all that. Plus, I think that Ipolitov, you said Ivanov? I've been saying Ivanov all these years. If it's, uh, see, I feel like if it's Ipolitov, it should also be Ivanov. But I also said okay. Ipolitov, Ivanov for a long time. I don't know. Nobody's written. So, <laughs> so if any of you out there know the correct pronunciation, Keep it to yourself. <laughs> shout, um, shout, shout out to uh, <laughs> Michael Barone. To Michael Barone. <laughs> but you really should you you really should pay particular attention to the procession of the Sardar because if you want to get an idea of how impressive the arrival of this person was, listen to that music and you will get a, a really good clue as to how ornamental and and majestic and. Um, what an event the arrival of this person would be. I mean, really, really, really great music. Y'all, y'all know how I give it up. You know, always. You know, everything black. I'm rooting for everybody black. You know, not not all of that is still there. Um, but with that said, I think it's some, you know, some some really cool sounds out there um, on the you know Eastern European mm-hmm. uh, side of things that that explores you it's know those aesthetics area. and it's it, 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 it's great. Shout out, shout out to uh, the late Mikhail Mikhailovich. Ipolitov, Ivanov, or Ivanov, you know, <laughs> um, and um, and all of the folks who you know can can appreciate that that style of music. Um, yeah, Caucasian sketches, uh, actually the first suite by that composer. So yeah, uh, links to that in the um, in the description here. Now on the more contemporary side of things, you had some uh, a couple tunes that you were listening to this week. It was a crazy coincidence that you sent me a text about. You know, feeling up and down and, and, and feeling a low point. And I was listening to this piece with the group Osso, it's O-S-S-O, and Sufjan Stevens from their release Run, Rabbit, Run. And, and basically they're going through all the, uh, the Chinese New Year signs. But Year of the Tiger is the one that came up. And it reminded me of kind of a little bit about what this is like. Everybody is going through the ups and downs of this COVID thing and um, all of the, the reckonings on race that are happening. And how can you not, with that in the background, how can you not feel depressed at some point? Yeah. And it might drag you down to a certain point where you're, you're calling in sick or spending days in bed. And if that's happening, that's all normal, man. Everybody's, everybody's having it. But when I was listening to this music, it was going on at a pace that you would think, uh, oh, well, this is really pleasant, and, then, and, and, I'm, and I'm starting to enjoy it. And then there's all of a sudden, like when you're having a pretty good day, and then something interrupts it just for a minute, and then, they're, and then you're back into the way you were. And this track, Year of the Tiger, has these little bits of punctuation or moments of frustration that just kind of set in. And I thought it was a, it was a reflection of just some of the ways that you know that our days are going, 
And moving on from that, I listened to uh, Clearing Dawn Dance by Judd Greenstein and Y Music. And I have to say that this is the first piece of music in a long time that brought me out of a mood. I, w- I was in a foul, even though it was a beautiful day, I was, I was just having trouble getting going and not looking forward to the tasks of the day. And this song came up. It must. It, it, uh, I don't even know how it ended up in the particular list that I was listening to. But Judd, you brought me out of a funk with this. When you uh, played that uh, piece of music for me earlier, you know, what what did I do? I got on my my usual bandstand of with all of this incredible stuff out here. We do not have time for, you know, fill in, fill in the blank here. You know, there's there's so much music that's happening right now that, as you say, pulled you out of a funk, has, you know, aesthetics that really apply to... um, today's listener you know i think um when a person is hearing uh, symphonic music um they're automatically going to tie it to a movie or a video game or you know some of the other places where you naturally hear those sounds mm-hmm. so you know um w- w- with music w- that that uh is painted with those colors you know that palette and um you know w- with its ability to really uh you know as you said pull you out of a mood I, I think it just I don't I, I don't know it, it, it's hard for me to continue to to cape for uh, Mahler and 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 mm. Schumann and 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 all you know not that that's not great music but you know I think that should just be the sound and um, you know we're, we're continuing to uh, get through this summer but I think when 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 we get into the fall I think we're really gonna feel a lot of folks are going to feel what it's like to not have the concert hall there you know right um so right. you know w- w- with the world so drastically changing you know this is really our opportunity to take music like this you know composers like Joe greenstein and put them up on the podium where um uh you know, Schubert was, you know, or, or where Rachmaninoff was, because this is how the music is is going to be consumed right now. So let's, if we're going to change the experience, let's change the sound as well. I think we need to just at this, the first thing that should happen is just changing the ratio. Don't you think? Because we're not saying at the exclusion of the Mahlers or anything from, you know, whatever uh, era that you might consider wallpaper that's, or it it goes against your own personal taste. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm not, I don't think that it needs to go away. I think that it just needs to go down to the ratio that we currently have contemporary music and bring contemporary music up to the ratio that we have all those others. Yeah. What do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, well, you know what? I really think throw it all away and, and do all new music. But <laughs> And that, that is, <laughs> and, and that is a way. That. Yeah. that is a way. So, you know, if you're asking me, that's what I think. But if we have to, you know, keep some stuff in there, you know, again, um, if, if we're going to into the digital platform for, um, you know, for, for so many more of these performances and these um, these experiences, mm-hmm. let's take this opportunity, you know, because 
Because what 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 is the the excuse? Well, you know, Beethoven five sells this many tickets or, or or whatever. So if we're not, you know, if 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 you don't if you don't have the tickets to rely on anymore, if it's just about you know getting folks to your website, getting mm-hmm. those clicks or whatever, you know, take 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 advantage of the opportunity to to really get a new sort of listener or a or expose your old listeners, um, your your more uh, loyal listeners to a new sound. I, I don't know. I just I, I'm not interested in in listening to um anything from the canon when there is music like this that i don't know and yeah the 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 canon has its place i think that place needs to shift along with many of the other traditions that are having to you know kind of go out the window now now in this crazy year of uh, uh 2020 um well the uh final bit of music that uh i wanted to um introduce folks to or, or you know reintroduce uh, you know because I'm sure there are a lot of, a lot of folks that have heard of junk canoe um, so uh, the this week's guest um, as I mentioned earlier Christine Gangelhoff uh, she um, works down in the Bahamas and um, you know is really trying to uh, bust down the idea of classical music as this you know colonizer music this western european thing um because there are folks you know from the bahamas and jamaica and other uh, caribbean nations that have written um you know this instrumental music and Mm -hmm. she has this incredible album called tour de force that uh we're going to hear a little bit of uh in the interview i'll have all of that linked uh in the description but one of the things she talks about in the interview is junk canoe and i wanted to uh make sure i gave folks a little bit of insight on that so um and, and 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 by the way, I, I I haven't talked about it much on Triloquy, but I did live in the Bahamas for a minute, and mm-hmm. uh, you know we were uh, Christine and I were were randomly connected, so I I did get a, an opportunity to see Junk Canoe um, in its smaller form. It's sort of like a, a street band uh, sort of thing where um, traditions from Africa with costumes and you know all this stuff is mixed with um, you know island uh, percussion and and horn playing, and uh, it's always late at night. You know it always gets started at like 2 a.m. or something so right you know you, you've been up all night and, and all that but you know it, it, it it's always for um for you know celebratory uh reasons mainly like on boxing day and uh and new year's day mm-hmm. I, I when i was in the bahamas uh for a while i have i was there during the 40th um independence day the 40th anniversary of independence so they were cool. doing a lot of special things for that and cool. and so there were junk canoe bands out um so christine and i sort of you know talk about um you know different um styles of music and um and traditions um, sort of being um, so natural in their environments that um, you have to go find it. You know, you're, you're lucky to go find the shacks in which these junk canoe um, rehearsals are are going on and how, you know, it took uh, uh, Christine going uh, into those spaces uh, mm. to get connected with other uh, Bahamian and Caribbean composers who are writing chamber music and, and musicians interested in different things. Just, just a really interesting uh, conversation. But I wanted to make sure that you know, I kind of gave folks an insight on junk canoe. Um, I'll, I'll have a video uh, posted on the uh, Triloquy website. But here's a little bit of uh, what junk canoe sounds like as we get into uh, my conversation with Christine Gangelhoff. Living in the Bahamas as having it's not the same experience as a tourist and people often think more about the negative things like oh tourists go there and they have this great experience they're on vacation and they're in this 
you know, sort of paradise, but they're not, they're not aware of like the day-to-day reality of living there and our constant power outages and, you know, things like that people focus more on. But from your angle, which I love, is they're not getting what we get, like this really deep, rich cultural experience. And, but when I first went to Bahamas, I had to, I had to work really hard to find like, the cultural traditions. There's, you know, the obvious junk canoe and rake and scrape. Um, so, but they're not, they're not that accessible. Junkanoo happens in, at New Year's and Boxing Day once mm-hmm. a year. And then there's some festivals throughout the year, but you have to, you, you really have to know where, where do these groups practice? Where are their, their shacks? So I think the, there's a really great room for growth in cultural tourism because I take people that come to visit me, I'll take them to my, my colleague leads a Junkanoo group, Colors Junkanoo. I'll take them to his shack and they, they just can't believe it. They're blown away. Or I'll take them to a practice. And, and people love that experience because it's, it's a behind the scenes, not what everyone gets to see. But if you don't have a contact in the Bahamas or wherever you're traveling, it's a lot more difficult because everything is prepackaged and it's designed to be a certain, more kind of polished. And and me, anywhere I've lived or traveled, I always like dive deep and really want to get, I don't, I'm not interested in the, the, the polished thing. I want to get the, so I'm kind of an expert at finding that stuff, but that's, that's how I've been my whole life. But for people who, and people are a little intimidated when they go. So I think that the most you can do is just start talking to people and, mm. and really asking. You can ask people at hotels, but you can just ask people on the street or people, vendors, things, where is stuff happening? And they really want to show it off. There, it's, there's a sense of cultural pride, but it's, it's just really not packaged for the consumer. But they're, they're, they're making progress, definitely. Yeah, I think of the um, the native music, the indigenous music of the Bahamas as not being in the grocery store, but being out in the fields for you to, you know, if, we're ta- if we want to make the, the fruit analogy, you know, it's not in the grocery stores. You have to go get the coconut off the tree or you have to go find the mango or the breadfruit, you know, where, where, where it naturally lives. Um, and, and we're going to talk about some of the um, classical, so-called classical music uh, from the Bahamas and, and uh, Caribbean nations. But you mentioned junk canoe, and I'm, and I'm sure there are lots of folks who have never even heard heard of that. I, I had the pleasure of sort of getting a taste of Junk Canoe um, during uh, the 40th uh, anniversary, uh, Independence anniversary of the Bahamas, but um, I, I'm sure there are a lot of folks who've never heard of that. Well, how, how can you uh, paint the picture, the very colorful picture of Junk Canoe for people? Well, Junk Canoe is just incredible, and it's the, it's the festival music of the Bahamas, and it happens, like I mentioned twice, Boxing Day and New Year's are the two main mm-hmm. celebrations. And it's this massive street parade that goes down Bay Street, which is the main, main thoroughfare right downtown. And they set up bleachers. I mean, this is the contemporary version of it. And it's a competition. So there's these massive groups and they have choreography, costumes, um, these massive brass sections, percussion, and they're all wearing these costumes and these huge floats. And all the music is acoustic. So there's no recorded music and I've had even friends from other Caribbean nations come, friend from the Virgin Islands, for example, who had been to Trinidad Carnival and was completely blown away because a lot of the traditions throughout the region have become more, they'll have big sound systems on these floats and then people dancing behind them. But this is all 
I think it's one of the few traditions that stayed acoustic. So, and you'll see these rows and rows of sousaphones. Mm-hmm. And, and the same friends that I've never seen so many sousaphones in one place. It's like, how can an island the size have so many sousaphones? <laughs> and, and it's just, yeah, I mean, it's an incredible experience. And so that's a great starting point for people. And it's a great time of year. So I always encourage people to come for Junkanoo because it's very, you can get tickets for it. You can get a seat. It starts at like 2 a.m. So you have to sort of right. commit right. to it. And but but often I, I don't I've missed maybe one year, but I'm I'm a hardcore Junkanoo fan. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the, the idea of all these sousaphones on uh, New Providence kind of reminds me of, you know, uh, what the island can often lack. So, you know, one of my challenges as an oboe and bassoon teacher um, in Nassau was that, you know, the island had one bassoon that was kind of a bassoon. I mean, I had never actually seen that sort of <laughs> instrument with, with, you know, with missing keys, but built to be missing certain keys, you know, a, a, a very, very, very... Um, um, beginner uh, instrument, you know, we, we we may do, but, you know, the challenge was still there. You know, there were a lack of, of, of resources. I wonder if you can um, speak to that as we transition into the uh, more uh, so-called classical side of, of bah- Bahamian music. You know, how does um, an island nation deal with um, a lack of resources on the musical side? I'm sure, you know, sometimes there's a, a reed that you just can't find on the island or there's this sheet of music or, or anything. Yeah, that's a, a serious issue. And I, I just have to say, I love how you call it so-called classical music. <laughs> I, I'm, I love that approach to it. Um, but regarding the lack of resources, yeah, I mean, when I found out you were teaching oboe and bassoon there, I, I, I wish you were still in Nassau because we have... Me too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you, you'll always come back. You can always come back. Um, but yeah, there's, there is an issue, like I see students coming into the university or high school students I work with and I was like, where do they, where do they get these instruments? And an instrument repair is an issue and supplies everything because there's no dedicated music store. Hmm. And you basically, but it, there's, it's again, there are pros and cons and I, I can't, you know, I don't, I don't want to like sound like a Pollyanna, but there, the the lack of resources sometimes fosters creativity mm. and and for example the cd that i gave you the tour de force cd that started because the colleagues at that time at the university were myself chris justillian who plays euphonium i'm a flutist and christy lee who's a pianist and we were the kind of the core music faculty and we we all have perf- performance backgrounds and so we said, well, we have to form a trio and and every and nobody can deal with that combination of instruments. Like when I tell other classical friends this is the instrumentation, they're they're just like, Well, that doesn't exist. That's not a thing. I'm like, Well, it is now and yeah. and we just made it work and we, we had to get really creative and do our own arrangements of pieces. We used a lot of vocal music and would make our own arrangements and and it, it in the end it worked great because we have a, a high and a low and then the harmony and so it's like it could be a violin cello trio and yeah. you know a lot of music works for it and our students do the same thing they just you you work with what you have and and it, in in the end it can actually be something more interesting yeah 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 and, and more culturally competent uh, I imagine as well yeah exactly 
Yeah. Okay, so so let's talk about that phrase, classical music, you know, so-called classical music. How do you define that now? I, I'm sure you can speak to how you were sort of conditioned to think of it as a certain thing, but but now, you know, having experienced everything you have, how would, how would you define that phrase to someone? This would take a long time for me <laughs> to really get into that topic. Um, I've actually had like a very complicated relationship with classical music my entire life. Mm. And so this is nothing new for me. And it, it kind of, I, I don't come from a, I didn't grow up with classical music at all. I grew up on a farm, very working class background and was just obsessed with music and knew I wanted to do that and, and just kind of got drawn into classical music because that what is what you did. You studied music. And I always joke like I got mixed up in the wrong crowd because I ended up as a classical musician. And I actually have so many more interests in music. And there was a brief window where I, I got sucked into that kind of snobbery that classical music is kind of the default setting. Mm. And so there was a short time where I, I was like, I can't be bothered with pop music. I'm comparing recordings of Brahms symphonies. And it was, it was a very small window, mind you. But, okay. <laughs> but then I got woken up when I had um, Susan McClary. I don't know if you're familiar with her work, but she's a, she's a very well-known feminist musicologist. Mm. And she, people can't believe this, but she was my music history, undergrad music history professor. Oh, wow. And what school was this? This was at the University of Minnesota. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And she completely changed my view of classical music. And she had very feminist background. But then she would also, she played public enemy and would, and would say, you know, this, this, is, this is complicated music. All this is happening in the studio. And I was like, I can't play. She's playing public enemy. And... <laughs> It was, it, I mean, it was so amazing. And, and then at the same time, I met So Amensa, who's a master drummer from Ghana. And mm. he's now on faculty at McAllister. Yeah, yeah. And so this, this was the, my brief, like, snobbery when my very first semester, and we had a, a performance seminar, and they brought in the African flute and drum ensemble. And I, I was like, wow, this is this is really cool. And then I thought, well, if only they could play those flutes in tune, it would be so oh. much better. <laughs> and so little did I know. And so I talked to him afterwards and I said, oh, I play the flute. And, and he said, well, why don't you join the ensemble? And I was like, oh, really? And so I joined this ensemble thinking, well, this can't be that complicated. And Right. <laughs> and so we, you know, the flutes, you know, they're like recorders, they don't have keys. And I thought, well, how hard this can, you know, can this be? And we, we were learning our first song in the flute. I'm like, yeah, I got this, no problem. And then he said, okay, now we're going to fit it with the timeline. And I almost fell off my chair. It was like, wait, I thought that was the downbeat, but this, <laughs> like you, you can tell where the downbeat was. And it, it's like turned everything upside down. And, and so then I just became obsessed with like, Oh, classical music is just one of many things and there's all these other things and they're actually not mutually exclusive you know everything and so I, I have this lifelong kind of battle 
especially in academia, of including all these diverse musical styles and like leveling the playing field. And and I, I've always sort of, it's been part of my identity, but it's also sort of gotten in the way and to the point of where like I would have job interviews for a flute position at a university mm-hmm. and they would say, well, we see you play klezmer music and African drumming and you know we just really want somebody who can play and teach the flute and i was like well what what about that makes you think that i can't right. like i'm not a legitimate flutist and so so that was sort of this ongoing battle my whole life and when i went to the bahamas the first thing i did was dive into the folk traditions and and the only reason i got in interested in the classical tradition was because I was teaching a world music class and I needed an example of voodoo music yeah. to play for the students. And I, so I started looking at Google for examples of voodoo. And one of the examples that came up is actually on the, the same CD tour de force. It's called Sonata Voodoo Jazz. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, what's this? And it's this classical piece by a Haitian composer. And I listened to the, I was like, why didn't I ever think of that? Like there could be classical music here. And it, it just, it just didn't occur to me. And so then I started looking and I'm like, there's actually a lot of this stuff. And, and I talked to this librarian friend who was there at the time. And so we started compiling it and I would find it and talk to people and interview people and she would compile it. And we made this bibliography and, and I was like, it was, it was so exciting to me because I felt like now I'm comfortable with classical music because I always felt like it was this other world that was really just kind of designated for a certain group of people. And now I, I thought in this new context and I was like, this is, this is what it should be. And yeah. like this, it, it just, it has a whole different look. And so then from there I started incorporating into my classes and it just, it led to so many different paths but that was that was kind of basically how it happened if that makes sense yeah, yeah. and um the um that that voodoo jazz piece you were talking about i believe the composer is uh, julio racine yes um it, he, he was uh, actually a composer that i was uh, familiar with before my time in the caribbean so yeah I, i'm lucky to have happened wow. upon that um but but i want to jump back to um you know what you were saying about the sort of snobbery that you know many of uh, of, of us classical musics have to uh, musicians have to traverse you know over uh, our development and our careers i wonder if that feeling you know if if we want to blow that feeling up into the whole um, uh, uh, sort of landscape, the, the the whole climate of classical music, Western classical music, is that something that you have seen um, on the other side? You know, in your time in the Bahamas and other Caribbean nations, is there the idea that oh, that is the the snobs' music, that is the colonizers' music? Is is that sort of a, is that air that we have to traverse? One that's understood uh, from folks, you know, outside of that training in your experience. Yeah, definitely. It's mm. it's a slightly different dynamic and for different reasons. But there is definitely the view. So there's it's it's really interesting. So classical music can be seen in a number of different ways. So some people see it as it's it's not it's not our music. It's for a different audience or the, you know, it's it's seen as very sophisticated or elite. Mm-hmm. And and again, like you said, it, it's looked at as a colonial tradition. And 
but then there are other so when I first started researching music and I have a problem with the term classical music that's why I love that you call it yeah. so-called classical music <laughs> yeah. and so in the in the book that I co-authored we we sort of grappled with that and we ended up calling it art music and which I'm still not thrilled with I know sure. people have called it concert music but to me there's I don't really there I haven't found a term that I'm happy with actually the best term so far is so-called classical music <laughs> Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> yes, I'm going to adopt that. So the um, as I was doing research, interviewing people, seeing what was out there, I would get a mixed responses from people. And they would say, like some friends of mine in Jamaica would just say, no, we don't have anything. There's no, you'll like, you can keep looking. I don't know anything. And you could try this one person. And I, you know, I'd find this one person and then other people would say, we have lots of classical music. We have Bob Marley and Peter Tosh. And so that's, that's again, like, I love that. I love that yeah. that is considered classical music. And, and it's yeah. all, to me, it's all relative. But there was actually, there was a substantial number of Jamaican composers that a lot, a lot of people from there didn't even know about. Mm. And, and it's the same... It's interesting in so I a couple like big moments for me were I put on a, a symposium of composers of Afro-Caribbean descent with a conductor from New York Marlon Daniel who leads Ensemble de Monde. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so we we did this in NASA when Ensemble de Monde came to the Bahamas and since they were there, I like we we need to put on a symposium and bring all these people together and have this conversation. So one of the sessions was a a panel of all Bahamian composers, and the it was in the library auditorium. It was packed, and and I thought I don't know how this is going to go. People aren't really you know they don't embrace classical music, and but the fact that it was packed, there were people from the Defense Force Band and the Police Band, a lot of people from the community, and so these four Bahamian composers took turns. They talked about their compositions, they played examples, and people were just blown away. And this, at the end, we were taking questions and there was this woman in the audience. We never figured out who she was. We, we, she's now known as the blue shirt girl because okay. she had a blue shirt <laughs> on. We we're like, who is that blue shirt girl? And she said, she, said she, she didn't have a question, she just had a comment. And she just said, I didn't know we had this. It's this is incredible. I I can't believe this kind of music is coming out of our people. I just didn't know. And and it was just silent after that. Like all the panelists were like you know fighting tears basically yeah. because yeah. it was like it was incredible. And so a lot of the issue is it's just not it's just not part of the culture. But it's it's not it doesn't mean that they don't embrace it. It's just they're not exposed to it. And so to me that I just felt like, okay, my work here is done. <laughs> like I just yeah. felt like with that comment, I mean not really, but it was very moving. So so I feel like there's that's kind of the other side of the story. 
Yeah, yeah, you know, that reminds me of, you know, so many um, instances I can bring up when I bring up names like um, Margaret Bonds or Florence Price or William Grant Still to, you know, black folks here in the States, uh, you know, and, and, and get that similar reaction. You know, I, I wonder if you feel some sort of uh, pressure, you know, coming um, into um, these countries, going into that space as an outsider and teaching them or exposing them, helping expose them to something that is already a part of their culture. Culture, just a part of their culture that they haven't always known or understood. I mean, it, there has to be a little bit of pressure there. <laughs> oh, big time! I'm, I'm, all, I'm kind of obsessed and fanatical about about treading those waters. And I gave. I mean, I've I've performed and done lectures, and especially with the group Sea Force around the Caribbean, and I'm. It's yeah, it's very it can be very uncomfortable and I'm I'm very it's probably cuz I don't get terribly nervous when I perform, but in those situations I do feel there was an instance where I had to where I played a concert of all Caribbean art music at the Edna Manley College in Kingston, Jamaica. Mm-hmm. And one of the members of faculty is like a very like this renowned reggae musician and and I, I just, I felt so nervous, and and he asked, he asked a question at the end about classical music, and and I sort of gave, it was the same response about Bob Marley is classical, and so we we got in this discussion, and in the end he gave me a thumbs up, and I was like, oh, was like, oh. <laughs> you got your stamp of approval. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was like, I was so terrified, and but I, I just, I'm very, very careful about that and I'm always very respectful and I'm I'm always like in the book that I co-authored with another white American woman um, I was very uncomfortable with that and we just made a huge point of including all these voices in the book and had the foreword by a Puerto Rican composer and the the comments in the book throughout the book there's voices of all these composers of students of from the Bahamas and all over the Caribbean and just really include all these different perspectives. But it's something I'm definitely always aware of and just try my best to approach it with from from a position of complete respect. And that's as best as I can do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I want to talk about um, a little of this music, and you know, you, you told the story of performing in Jamaica, so I think we'll we'll uh, head over there. There's a, a track on um, the uh, the album Tour de Force called Elena and Her Variations, and I understand this has uh, Jamaican roots. W- would you mind telling us a little bit about this one? Yeah, that's a really great piece. So, the same story I mentioned, where I couldn't find any Jamaican composers, one of the people that my contacts led me to was Rosina Motor, who's a German or Austrian originally, but she's married to a Jamaican composer, Peter Ashbourne, mm. who is the composer of that piece. So Rosina is a um, professional recorder player, and which is very interesting in the Caribbean because I tell my students that, and they're like, "You can play the recorder as a profession." <laughs> I'm sure they'll they'll ask that same question here. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But not many people know about like the early music specialist, right. and you know, it's it's very specialized that 
the Caribbean doesn't really have that sort of industry that, that could support an early music ensemble, but she does manage to still play recorder professionally. And so the piece was written for her on recorder. Her middle name is Elena. So he composed it for his wife because she wanted to, so she's done a lot of research on Jamaican composers and she's the one that gave me a ton of information. She has a website, now she has a foundation. Um, I can send you that information, but she's done a ton of work. And her, her husband, Peter Ashbourne, is one of the just most well-known composers out of Jamaica. And he does, uh, he's, he's an example of, in, in the book I talk a lot about the versatility of these composers and he's done classical. He's known a lot for his jingles for all these commercials. Like I played some in this presentation and everyone in the audience like would sing along with every single one. They knew them all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and then he's done he he played in reggae bands, like really prominent stuff and he composed a reggae opera. And so just a like really incredible musician. And so this piece Elena and her variations is was written for his wife for the recorder and so I took the piece and I made a version for flute and so I didn't have to make that many changes there were some things in the like the register I had to lift some things up a little bit higher and then I I made some things a little more virtuosic where a recorder would have a hard time doing it and just changed a few things here and there but but not that much and so the the piece is interesting because it's it's based on a Jamaican folk theme and, and then there's these set of variations and some of them are very syncopated and kind of island-like, like you could tell this is, you know, it doesn't sound like typical classical music, but then there's some that are very chromatic and mm-hmm. almost atonal. And so it, it has a really wide range of, of different feelings throughout it. Yeah, yeah. How about we listen to a little bit of it here? Yeah, so as we were, um, you know, talking earlier, um, uh, but before we started recording, you know, everyone can sort of hear that uh, Jamaican uh, backbeat and and associate it with, you know, that part of the world. But even this piece of music, you know, it it doesn't have that, um, it doesn't necessarily uh, have that sound to it, but it definitely has that spirit, you know, of of the islands. You know, you can almost taste the salt water as you you listen there. You know, it's the same thing I said um, about another uh, recording on this album. My favorite uh, recording um, uh, by a Bahamian composer, um, it's called San Salvador. Now, now, first and foremost, um, I understand this is a part of a large uh, Bahamian suite. Yes. Yeah, so the piece is called the Bahamas Island Suite, and it's by my colleague Chris Justilian. So he's a member of the Sea Force. And the way this piece came about was really fascinating. And so we, this is in the early days of Sea Force, and we were doing, as I said, there was no music written for our flute, euphonium, and piano. So everything we did, <laughs> surprisingly. Yeah. Now there are a few pieces. Um, 
So everything we did were our own arrangements. And Chris, Chris's background is more in jazz. And like I said, he leads a Junkanoo group. And, but we, we made him play all this classical stuff and you know, really he made him uncomfortable, but he, he was just up for the task. And so he said, I'm gonna write a piece for us. And we were like, that, that's awesome. And so the first piece he wrote was Tilla. And, and I think that's also on the CD because we did a, a CD of all Bahamian composers and Tilla was on that. That's one of my favorite pieces ever. And so we did that and he was like, this is payback time because the, it was full of syncopations and it, it was, I've, I've played many styles. So it was, it, I, it was manageable for me, but the poor pianist, Christy, <laughs> she had such a problem trying to get these rhythms and Chris would have to sit down with her and drum on her lap or on a drum or even on the piano and try to get the rhythms. And he was like, now you know how I feel having to play all these classical things because she did these <laughs> opera arrangements. And right. so he, you know, he had to work on all these different things that he hadn't done for a long time. And so he was like, it's payback time. And <laughs> <laughs> which we loved. And so we did Tilla and then he's, he started bringing in these other pieces. And I don't know if San Salvador was the very first one, but he, he brought in this piece. He goes, oh, I want you guys to read this. And so we play through it and we're like, this is amazing. And I said, you're like creating a new genre of music because it's, it's classical in, in the way that it's, it's written and it's you know orchestrated, but it's, it's very like island, like you can feel the island influence. And he uses these, all these different harmonies that, you, I mean, it's just incredible. And so we we're like, do more of these, we need more of this stuff. And so he, he kept bringing them in and then he said, now it's done. It's a suite. And so it was, and it's this suite and it tells this story about his kind of from his childhood going. So it, it, it's kind of like a story. And San Salvador was the first island in the Bahamas that was discovered by Christopher Columbus. Yeah. And so, so-called discovery. Yes, exactly. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and so he, so the piece is based on that and it includes some Spanish and Italian influences and then Bahamian and so in it and it quotes the Bahamian national anthem at some point and it's it's just very it's so fresh sounding I just love it so much and and then the rest of the suite they're different there's something about his childhood in Pinder's Point Grand Bahama that's another one of my favorites and then his summers on a Luthra which is like you can hear he blows in the euphonium like a just air so it sounds like the ocean yeah and yeah. it's it's just when we play it people just like are you know so chill from hearing it and then there's a movement about the um ragged island which was this there was a bombing of a, a by the cuban missiles of a bahamian boat and mm. that was a big historic moment so he had that in there and then the last movement is about bimini and it's this whole all about fishing and resilience. And so it's just like very programmatic work. And but San Salvador, I agree, is really just kind of a magical piece of music.
And now that I think about it, uh, you're you're kind of wearing flag colors now over this Zoom call. So <laughs> that's true. So, so the Bahamas has come with you a little bit. Yes, always. Yeah, um, you know, um, we, we touched on it before, but I, I kind of want to, um, as we begin to wrap up here, sort of um, address it um, head on, you know, the, the, the issue of race in the Bahamas. So, you know, the Bahamas is, is very much a, a black country, but um, at the same time, it's very much a country that deals with levels of um, segregation and and oppression as, as you know as I experienced when I lived there anyway you know I, I told you the story um, when we met the first time about um, the the yacht club and how that is you know a white establishment even though it it is home you know in this in this black country you know um, you know through your music or maybe even through other um, aspects of your uh, life and work down in the Bahamas how do you traverse the issue of race and and is it a conversation that's similar to uh, what's going on these days here in the states? It's interesting. It's it's different than what's going on in the states. Although there's a feeling of solidarity, definitely. Mm. But it's the dynamic is different. I mean, there's some, there are definitely similarities. But like you said, it's it's a predominantly black country. And so you think, well, it can't there can't be racism. It's, everybody's black. <laughs> And but it's it's very it's very <laughs> it's very, it's it's more nuanced in some ways, and there are sort of enclaves like people. I mean that's true everywhere. People are surrounded by people who are like them, and so you see enclaves of all white people, and then people of certain classes, and mm. it's it's segregated in that way. Um, you know, not entirely, of course, but there are. Um, it was interesting for me to sort of to see that and to try to make sense of it and to see, oh, this is this is racism, but it's manifesting in a different kind of way. And there's like there's different there's a disparity of wealth and like there's a very small white minority and they're in charge of a lot of the, you know, the right. <laughs> very a wealthy businesses. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And you can see things. I notice things like when I go to renew my license for my car or to National Insurance Board, places where there's very long lines where you have to wait outside, you don't see a lot of white people. And because cause the, the, those people can afford to send somebody to do it for them. And so, so things like that are really more obvious. And another one that I have kind of taken on is beach access and that's kind of complicated on many layers but there's a lot of these mega resorts that that go up and build a lot of walls and fences and block access to the beach and i i live near cable beach and i walk the beach every morning almost every morning and i can see from going from the public beach what it looks like and then going past the hotels and then back to the other end which is public beach and it's like i mean it's 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 black and white <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. It, like literally black and white and the the hotels i i pull out the karen card if i if i can say it i and say because there i, I have this ongoing battle with letting people pass these hotels and there's security guards that say 
oh no, you can't, you can't come past here. Or the hotels are built down on the beach. So you, you like, if it's high tide, you can't get past. And so mm. I, I march up onto the property and they, they stop me and I say, well, I, where, where can I get through? And, and so I've, I've kind of like, I've done a few sort of put together some panel discussions on beach access and, and because it's not about me getting access, being able to pass, it's, you know, it's about everyone and the local population building get through. And it's sort of like, that's just not given consideration. Yeah. And yeah. so, so there's things like that, that are basically like institutionalized racism and classism that, that are like people, people wouldn't be aware of it. Even a lot of Bahamians, I, I'll, I'll say this is a situation, but they don't know, they don't go to that area. They're not aware of it, but I see. Yeah. I see. And, you know, and, and it's so interesting when you talk about going to certain areas on the Bahamian island of New Providence. You know, I think end to end is maybe a 40 minute drive. But, you know, there are still areas that folks, you know, don't go to. And, and of course, you know, that can play into, you know, uh, systemic issues of where people feel like they're allowed to go or, or, or where they, you know, feel like they're welcome. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm encouraged by, you know, hearing your um, basically lay out ways in which you use your power and your privilege to initiate um, certain conversations. But, you know, a lot of well-intentioned um, non-black people sort of step in it, you know, <laughs> every now and again, or just completely um, miss the mark. How, how do you deal with um, making sure that you aren't um, you know, virtue signaling or, or tokenizing the music or the people of, of the Bahamas? How, how, how do you sort of stay away from or traverse the conversation of being this uh, white savior, as, <laughs> as, as it were? <laughs> yeah, no, that's, a, that's an awesome question. And that, that takes a lot of awareness. And I see that all the time of, of the white savior complex. Um, it's yeah, it's it's a very it's a very you you have to be really aware and basically I mean there's there's so many examples I could give. I live like listening to you I listened to one of your programs um a couple days ago. The one with Titus Underwood. Oh yeah, shout out to Titus. Yeah. Yes, yes, shout out. And he was pointing out that Con, like a concert of all black composers, it has to be, this is a concert of all black composers, but we have concerts all the time of all white composers. Right. And it's just considered, that's, that's like the default setting. Right, right. And you, don't, you, you would never say, oh, I'm putting on a concert of all white composers. And so, so I've always had a, you know, a hard time sort of balancing because I mean, I like when I was an undergrad, I put on a concert. I was like, where are all the female composers? I, yeah. I, so I, I put on a concert of all female composers as an undergrad. And people were just like looking at me like, what's, what's wrong with her? Like, nobody does that. <laughs> and, and so I, I, I've always sort of like looked for the gaps. And mm. so it's, but you, you just have to, to me, I think also being, you have to be okay with being corrected and opening yourself up and and it, it happens to me I mean it happens to me I wouldn't say a lot but it certainly happens and for example I just gave a online like presentation called um, world-class in the backyard and it was all about 
mostly about classical music and how we don't have to look to like European models to show examples to our students. We have, you know, talent here locally, regionally, all that. And I had all these, all these examples I played throughout the presentation. And one of the people in the audience posted a question in the chat. And she said, she's this Trinbagodian soprano. who's a very close friend of mine. And she posted in the chat and somebody was moderating the chat. And she said, do you have any female examples? And I, I said, yeah, we do. They, we, there's, there, we talk about that in the book. There's, you know, composition has been largely dominated by males, but now there's, you know, it's changing and we have a couple examples. And then she wrote, well, I'll include one next time. And, and I was like, oh, shit. Like, I, I kind of, at first I felt hurt. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm trying so hard. And then I yeah. was like, she's right. And then afterwards I, I texted her and I was like, thank you for pointing that out. And so you just, I, I mean, that, that to me, that was a really good example of how you can't, I mean, you'll never get it right. You're always going to miss something. I, I, I did a concert of all female composers. I'm sure they were all white female composers. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, so it's, it's a, you just have to be open to, to people. And, and the other thing that has really helped me is to like build relationships with people. And through all of the research I've done, all of the interviews, it's like I always end up becoming friends with the people and having this ongoing relationship. And it's sort of like broadened my whole view but it's also like drawn in all these different perspectives. And I feel like a lot of times what happens when people are doing research or doing this, it's more of like they have their informants and they're kind of treated as like data collection and right. getting things. And, and it's like, I, I can't do that almost to a fault. Like I'm, I'm so, you know, it, I, it always ends up turning into something deeper and it takes a lot more time. It's like extremely time consuming. But to me, that's, that's important. That's, that's like a value that, that I hold. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. yeah, if we if we can kind of uh, you know tie this back around full circle when we talked about you know um, uh, Bahamian music and this uh, the music from these other islands you know being like fruit not in the grocery store but you, that you have to go find and pick and then of course on that journey you're learning things on the journey to that coconut grove you know how do you climb the tree did you have to climb it so you know what I, what I think you're laying out is just you know not only um, you know putting the music out there but really um, enjoying uh, the journey and the exploration toward it. I, I think it's a, a beautiful thing. And, and I really appreciate you for for uh, putting this album together for, um, you know, this this unusual, I, I don't even want to call it an unusual instrumentation because <laughs> it works so well and, and, and it uh, sounds so natural. Um, where, where can folks um, find this album and also uh, the, the book that you uh, have mentioned a couple times? Yes. Well, okay. So the, the CD can be found on iTunes, Amazon, any of the digital platforms. And let's see, uh, the book can, same can be found on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, there's different versions of it. The, the Kindle version is the one that has embedded sound files. So basically like the book is a, was written after the CD, a couple years after the CD, because I, I sort of really wanted, 
I did it a lot for students because I wanted I wanted them to have more information on all these composers. And so we sort of structured it around the CD that we already had. And so that version, you actually get the tracks in the book and the other versions didn't support that technology. So you get basically like just the text and then you would get the CD separately. Okay. Well, you know, here's to hoping that, you know, once COVID cools down and, and, and everything else, the, you know, the dust is settled, we can, uh, we can go meet at the Green Parrot and, uh, and, and have a click. <laughs> yes, please. I hope so much. Yeah, thanks so much for being on. <laughs> well, thank you so much, and thank you for your incredible work. It's so inspiring. Scott, I played a little bit of um, the album uh, Tour de Force, uh, specifically the um, the Bahamian Suite that uh, uh, Christine and I uh, uh, talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you you described some of the music as being sort of it, it were reminding you of Florida, uh, mm-hmm. of course, as you say. But of course, you know, the Bahamas is you know an hour off the coast of uh, of Florida. So I mean. When when you talk about, you know, that music reminding you of a certain thing, you know, um, as I was talking about with the Judd Greenstein earlier in this opus, you know, it does. Do you understand what I mean when I say speaking to an aural palette that is, you know, sort of relevant to today's ear? I, I feel like if anyone hears uh, uh, that the music uh, on that album it, uh, it, it brings up something very uh, specific for them, something that they can actually relate to more than an 18th century royal court or, or sure. whatever. Yeah, I mean, do, do you know what I mean? I do. So um, I, I, I really want to, um, you know, do my best to get, you know, that, that music on. We will get it on the radio uh, airways, but I'm, I'm going to see what I can do to get it there Um really fast so huge shout out to christian justilian um li- living composer you know down in the bahamas cool uh we should move triloquy down to to the bahamas you know i, I can be ready by tomorrow and, yeah okay well <laughs> uh well we'll we'll, <laughs> we'll 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 see but uh in the meantime let's go ahead and get into our triloquy we want to be free to to do what we want to do yeah. and we want to get loaded yeah. okay so real quick um <laughs> because uh, my mind was getting back to my time uh, in the Bahamas. You know, I wanted to uh, give a, a real quick um, get your life together to a man whose name I don't know. Uh, I'll quickly tell this story. Um, uh, one weekend when I was living down in the Bahamas, um, me and the person I was dating at that time, um, rest in peace, uh decided to go to one of the um the beaches where where the resorts are you know just to get a different look and and whatever and everyone was walking around with these cocktails and coconut shells and i was like oh that's cute i want one of those Uh, i walked up to this guy and i was like oh hey excuse me excuse me and like he would just not turn my way not talk to me nothing and i'm getting upset i'm like excuse me where did you you know get that drink and as soon um as i say that Another onlooker who I guess had been looking the whole time, she goes, oh, they're right over there at, at such and such. And he uh, turns around. He's like, oh, yeah, uh, sorry. I thought you were just one of those uh, 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 Bahamians trying to sell me something or whatever because of how I look and what my oh. hair is like and all that. So, oh. um, you know, 
I know travel is shut down right now uh, for the most part, but when folks start going out again and you're going to, you know, these different island countries or, or, or wherever you go, this this is where they live. This is their home. Don't go there treating them like nothing, ignoring them on the beach and, you know, X, Y and Z. And, and I, I know a lot of people will be like, oh, well, I, w- I would never do that. But but really think about it. You know, when you go on a cruise ship and you have that stop and, you know, there are folks, you know, trying to sell you this or trying to do that. Are you engaged? them or are you just putting on your blinders and 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 walking by and not wanting your your day interrupted you know th- that's something important to think about I will never forget that moment that man just pretending like I did not exist because I have dark skin and dreadlocks and he didn't want to be bothered by whatever I had to sell him or or whatever I was uh, begging for or whatever it's really it's really a shame how folks you know treat these folks in their own countries when they go on vacation you know well they've paid to be there right Ooh, but so, anyway, I, I, this isn't this is not what this is about. But uh, you know, I, I just needed to you know name that since you know we kind of went down into the Bahamas sure. um, on this opus. But um, the main thing we're talking about in, in this triloquy, you know, we're getting a little bit uh, political here. Okay, um, so I'm gonna say this, and um, I'm gonna be. Well, h- how about you go? What do you <laughs> what, what do you have to say concerning? Um, What's, what's, what's happening right now? We got the mail. We got, you know, go for it. Go for it, Scott. Oh, do, you kicked the... <laughs> uh, that's way too much for me to bite off all in one, all at once. It is. It's too much. It's, it's all too, too much. much. Okay, so let's start with... Uh, I think that people are going f- far too crazy with Biden saying, uh, saying that Biden has taken on the far left agenda. Um, I disagree uh, I, I think that Kamala was a, a very safe choice. Uh, and if you're having trouble saying her name, just go Kamala. <laughs> first things first, you know, can't even say the woman's name. Kamala. It's fine. Okay, you can, you can do it. But it was the safe choice, wasn't it? There, there, there's not much progressive, right? You know, I, I, I should say it is a huge moment you know, to think about a black woman vice president and potentially a black woman president, that 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 is huge. You know, I'm not here to, you know, uh, speak against, you know, that historic moment. Um, My frustration is, are we bucking the system? Are we changing the system or are we continuing things? You know, I I don't I don't even care to talk about uh, Kamala's time as a as a uh, prosecutor or or any, you know, that 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 is is not what what this platform is for. Um, I just want to make sure that that folks don't lose their verve you know the the, in, the that intensity. is key that is key because as soon as they take office um ho- hopefully that they take office um the pressure that is currently being applied out in the streets needs to be applied to joe biden and kamala harris so when so when and i think that it's going to be an easier path to get some of these changes through the administration that they propose. Right. So when you say a safe choice, you know, that that is not to say it is it is not, you know, historic and, you know, someone to have the, the not at all. audacity, you know, to to put a black woman on the ticket, you know, something, something historic. It, it's not about that. It's about, 
you know, is this a person who we don't have to worry about demanding student loan forgiveness, you know, or demanding, you know, national decriminalization of uh, marijuana and, and striking all those people's records, you know, mm-hmm. really, really making these uh, radical uh, changes that that, you know, we need something something I thought about um, uh, on the news. They were talking about how, you know, with the way that, you know, all of the drama with the with the mail in ballots and the Electoral College, you know, there is a, a real way for, um, you know, Trump to have like six million fewer votes than Biden and Harris and still get the presidency. You sure, know, like they, yep, they, know they, they did all the math. So, yep. you know, we, we are in a system that is keeping us from um, reforming things to be more, you know, representative. And, and I'm not trying to, again, I'm not here trying to, you know, cape for anybody or, or shit on, you know, anybody else, you know, when it comes to the politics, but let's face it, you know, the state of California, you know, has vastly more people than the state of, you know, Montana or the Dakotas. Mm-hmm. And there are still two senators there, you know, uh, that, that represent all of those people. You know, little little things that, you know, I think we need to at least talk about changing. But because of, you know, partisanship and, and all that sort of thing, you know, we're just locked into this way of thinking. So we can't, you know, stop imagining we can't stop broadening um the the way we can see a future for ourselves just because a black woman has gone into the white house i just really needed mm-hmm. to make sure that i came on here and 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 said that i am I, i'm i'm excited to see um you know miss harris rising um into the white house i think there are some uh, great things that she can do but we have to keep this same anger i don't want us to go to sleep i don't want us to get lazy mm-hmm. and 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 act like you know we have any time to rest you know because the further we go the harder we have to work the harder we have to try to push the needle um we 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 have to turn this system upside down and i think we can do it but we 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 can't get lazy and and we can't think it's safe just because uh you know kamala's in the in the white house no. No, because what you need to worry about is in the next couple of days when the president comes out and announces that he's dumping Pence in favor of Nikki Haley, then what are you? Wait, did do? that happen? No, but oh. that's what I'm saying is that they, if if they want something that is going to really put them on their heels with this momentum that, that is perceived at this point for Kamala's naming, and full respect again. This is a historic moment. I'm I'm saying that Stacey Abrams, or uh, I believe there's also a senator from Florida, the one that was on the Mueller probe, would have been uh, also another real bulldog choice. But you know, I wanted to see Bernie and AOC. So, uh, what was that meme that you shared about what I ordered versus what I got? All right, this all is right. what we have, right? <laughs> um, so anyway, that's that's that on that. Um, Go vote, um, mail in. If you got to do it in person, pay, wear your mask. I keep mean, paying attention. Yes, pay attention and and um, re- remain vigilant. Uh, before we get out of here, uh, just a, another reminder. You know, there's a, a half a million dollars out there for um, an arts organization, a creative youth development music organization, um, one that is uh, centered on you know serving these youth youths in a way that is culturally competent. You know, a way that speaks to them. You know, so if if you're someone doing 
doing that. If, if you're someone who could use a half a million dollars to help, you know, ex- expand that, um, check out the lewisprize.org. You can also get all of that information at, uh, on the front page of triloquy.org. Applications run out on Friday. So um, go out there. Um, and then as far as, you know, Triloquy, there's going to be an anarchist on the podcast next week. So see you then. Yeah. <laughs>